Well, let's ask the Lord's help as we come to his word to hear what he has to say to us this morning. Father, we thank you for the great privilege that we have to open up your word together, to have your word written down for us um, so that we can at any moment uh, when we need counsel from you, when we need direction or comfort or um, discipline, we can come to your word and find everything that we need um, to grow in knowing you and in following you, Lord. Um, and we ask for your help this morning as we consider our Lord Jesus. Father, we want to know him more. May you enable us to do that by your spirit. May you instruct us um, and just lead us closer to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're in Isaiah chapter 11 this morning. Isaiah chapter 11, and we're looking at the first 10 verses. So verse 1 begins like this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious." This time of year is a time when we get to consider what is arguably the greatest miracle that God has ever performed. It's when God the Son stepped down out of heaven and he took on flesh. He took on a human nature in addition to his divine nature to become man, to dwell among us. And this was an act, an incredible act of God's grace that he would stoop down to come and be with us so that he could be our substitute, so that he could save us from our sins. And despite this miracle, this incarnation being arguably the greatest miracle ever, when we read in the Old Testament, we find that this miraculous event is given relatively little attention. Instead, when we find the prophets when we read the prophets, we find that they give a greater focus to the rule and the reign of this God-man, the Messiah, in his coming kingdom. We find that that is where their focus 
falls. And when we consider what the prophets could see, what God had revealed to them, we find that they foretell his coming, his atoning for the sins of his people. They foretell his conquering and his ruling. But the church age was largely a mystery to them. God had not revealed it to them. Therefore, they did not see this huge thousands of years long gap in between the first coming of Christ and his ruling and reigning. They did not see that gap. And so when you read them, you find him coming and immediately ruling and reigning. You see them together like two mountain peaks that you're looking at from the side and you see two peaks right next to one another, his coming and his reigning. And so when we come to Matthew chapter 11, verse 3, when John the Baptist sends some of his disciples to question Jesus, understandably, we find him confused. And he asks Jesus, are you the expected one, or should we be looking for someone else? Because rather than enjoying the reign of the Messiah, where was John the Baptist sitting? In a prison cell. He did not know what was going on. So he wanted to make sure. But this close proximity that we read in the the prophets of the coming of Messiah and his kingdom, when we read the prophets, it is a helpful corrective to us as believers. Because oftentimes as Christians, we can lack this kingdom focus that we often find the prophets having and the Old Testament saints having and even the, the old saints in the birth narratives of Jesus having. We read this morning Simeon and Anna. Who were they looking for? What were they looking for? Simeon was looking for the consolation of Israel. And Anna was speaking to those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Oftentimes during Christmas, we can get so focused on the manger scene that we forget why the Lord came here in the first place that he came to redeem a people for his coming kingdom. And when we forget that, we can stop living in the light of that. I wanted to briefly look at 2 Peter chapter 3 because he offers this corrective to believers. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. He says, you are supposed to be living in the light of what is coming. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming day of God? because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, if we're looking for that, we ought to be living in the light of that. So Peter mentions this coming kingdom and that's the subject of our text this morning, the coming king and the coming kingdom. And that's what we're going to look at. In this chapter of Isaiah, chapter 11, the first five verses give us a snapshot of the coming king. And then when we work further down to verses 6 through 10, 
we find a picture of the coming kingdom. And I realize we're just kind of parachuting down into this book, this big, complex book of Isaiah. So I need to establish a little bit of context for us so that we can get the full effect of how chapter 11 begins. Let me read verse 1 of chapter 11, and then I'm going to work backwards through the book to give us some context. So verse 1, it says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem or the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense unless you back up and see what Isaiah has said before. Back up just two verses back up into chapter 10, starting in verse 33. Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts, will lop off the bows with a terrible crash. Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down, and those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe, and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Now, who's he talking about here? Well, if you read the rest of the chapter, chapter 10, he's talking about Assyria. Assyria was a nation that God was bringing against his people to discipline both Israel and Judah. And we know that ultimately Assyria would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And if we back up just a little bit further, we see in verses 33 and 34, he's describing Assyria as a tree But a little further back, he's also describing this nation um, with a tree-like metaphor. Back up in verse 18, he says that God will destroy, speaking of Assyria, he will destroy the glory of his forest and of his fruitful garden, both soul and body, and it will be as when a sick man wastes away. And the rest of the trees of his forest will be so small in number that a child could write them down. So again, Assyria is described as a great forest that God is going to obliterate. And this is ironic because back up to verse 15, what is Assyria described as in that verse? Assyria is being boastful. They're thinking, oh, me wiping out all these nations, that's my doing. But God is saying, no, no, you are an instrument in my hands. But what kind of instrument? Is Assyria in his hands? He says, is the axe to boast itself over the one who chops with it? Is the saw to exalt itself over the one who wields it? So God was using Assyria like an axe to chop down his people in discipline. But because of Assyria's pride, God is actually going to chop Assyria down. And this pride is just like the pride of Israel whom God was disciplining. Turn back to chapter 9 and verse 8. Here we see the pride of God's covenant people whom God has been disciplining. And these people are saying, it doesn't matter, we're just going to come back stronger than we were before. Verse 8, the Lord sends a message against Jacob and it falls on Israel and all the people know it that is Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, asserting in pride and in arrogance of heart. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. 
Therefore, the Lord raises against them adversaries from resin and spurs their enemies on. So in their pride, Assyria and Israel were like a tall tree that needed to be chopped down. And just to cap off our context, I want you to go back to chapter 6, where we see Isaiah, the prophet, being commissioned. And in verses 8 through 10, we find what the nature of his ministry is going to be. Isaiah, through his ministry, is going to have a hardening influence upon the people. The people of God are going to stop their ears to the messages that Isaiah is bringing. Seems like a futile ministry. And so in verse 11, Isaiah asks, Lord, how long? And God answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So in all these passages, we see Israel, Judah, Assyria. They are being pictured as trees that are to be felled, to be chopped down due to their pride. And so when we come to chapter 11 and verse 1, and we find Isaiah speaking of a shoot that is springing from the stump of Jesse, that makes sense now, that God has laid low his people. There's nothing left but just a stump in the ground. Now, if you were citizens of Judah and you were hearing Isaiah prophesy to you and he uttered this verse, the shoot will spring from the stem or the stump in this context of Jesse, what would that remind you of? Who would that remind you of? David, his son, Jesse's son, David. David was the standard for all the kings who came after him. And usually they fell short in comparison to him. And we know of the promise that God made to David that God would take one of David's descendants to seat him on the throne forever. And this chapter 11 is speaking about that coming descendant, the Messiah. So we would expect Isaiah to say the shoot will spring from the stem or the stump of David, wouldn't we? Not Jesse. But I think Isaiah is helping us to see that the coming Messiah, he will be a greater David. He will become the standard for the rulers of Israel, to which no one can compare. And as we consider this verse, this Messiah, this king that is coming, how does he start out? He starts out coming out of a stump in the ground. When this king comes on the scene, the house of David is going to be in shambles, in a ruin. And that matches what we read in the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke. When we first come across uh, Joseph and Mary, we don't find them in Jerusalem being celebrated as heirs of King David. Where do we find them? We find them in the detestable city of Nazareth. And when Jesus is born, he's not 
born into a palace with a palace crib, and he's not being visited by all the social elites coming by to see him. No, instead, who visits him? The dregs of society, shepherds. Shepherds are the only ones who come to take a look at what God has done. And what is he laying in? He's lying in a feeding trough of animals. And Mary and Joseph, when they come to have Jesus circumcised, and he gets circumcised, and Mary's days of purification are complete, and according to the law, she was to offer a sacrifice, what do we find her offering? Not a lamb, but two birds, because they could not afford a lamb. So the house of David has been laid low in the dust. Jesse's stump appears just dead in the dust. But when Christ is born, we get a glimmer of life, that it's not fully dead. There's still life in the stump. And it's hard from this beginning to tell what kind of king Jesus will be. And that's what brings us to verse 2. What kind of king will he be? Well, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of, the, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This king, this Messiah, he will be endowed with God's spirit. And when you read through the Old Testament, we'll find numerous examples where the Holy Spirit of God would rest upon certain individuals to enable them to do an important task for God. And it's the same with this Messiah. And in fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we see this same thing happening with David when Samuel comes to anoint him as king. It says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And it's the same with this king. The Holy Spirit will anoint him, come upon him, to enable him to rule well. But there's a difference. Nowhere in the Old Testament is there such an extensive description of how the Spirit comes upon one of God's servants. This king will be exceptional. And you don't have to turn there, but if you think back, or forward rather, to John chapter 3 and verse 34, it says there that the Father will give the Spirit to his Son without measure, it says. That the Messiah will have the, the unlimited anointing of the Holy Spirit. And it's this presence of, the, of Spirit-empowered rule that will characterize his reign as king. Because most of the kings of Israel and Judah are basically the opposite of what we read here. They were not wise, they were foolish. They did not have understanding, they were ignorant. They did not have wise counsel, they were devious. And they had no strength to hang on to their rule. They were weak men. And they certainly did not know God, and they certainly did not fear God. But it's not so with this king. He will be wise, he will possess unlimited understanding, he will have counsel. He'll know exactly what to do all the time, even facing extremely complex situations. 
and he will have the power to carry out his plans, and he will know God, and he will fear God. Reminds us of Luke chapter 4, where Jesus comes into the synagogue and he reads from a portion of Isaiah, a different portion than this. It's after he um, had been baptized by John and after he's been tempted in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 says, And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This king that is coming is Jesus. And he proved at his first coming, that he was this king. He is this king. But verse 3 gives us even more information. It says, And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. Now again, most of the kings of Israel and Judah were self-absorbed. They were concerned about their comfort, their pleasure, about their hold on their power, Even the best of the kings fell into this. David, Hezekiah, Josiah, they would fall into sin and idolatry and um, they would take their eyes off of God. But this king, he will delight in the fear of the Lord. That word for delight, it means literally to smell. And it conjures up images of of how God had prescribed sacrifices that were to be burned on the altar and the carrying out of those sacrifices would result in a sweet-smelling savor to God, something he would delight in. For this king, the fear of the Lord will be a sweet-smelling savor to him, something that is his all-consuming delight. You think of how We make it through a long winter of being cooped up inside, cloudy days, trudging through the snow, and then finally spring comes, and we get a nice sunny day, and the flowers are blooming, and you step outside, and you take a deep breath, and you breathe in the fresh spring air, and you just get a burst of just simple happiness. Well, the fear of the Lord is like that to this king. It fills him with exhilaration and happiness. He revels in standing in awe of his father and in obeying his father. This is the kind of king who will be our king. And not only that, but this verse says he will be an unfailing judge. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. This king cannot be deceived. No one can pull the wool over his eyes. 
Because this king, he looks beyond externals. He looks straight to the heart. And we know Jesus is exactly that. John chapter 2, verse 24 through 25 says, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, that is, the people, the crowds who began to follow him. Why? For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. This king can look straight into our hearts. Verse 4 continues to describe him and that aspect of his rule as being a judge. Verse 4, but with, the righteous, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. This king cannot be bought. He cannot be bribed by the rich to make decisions in their favor in opposition to the poor. And this is exactly the opposite of how the people in Israel and Judah had become. Look back at chapter 10, verses 1 through 2, at this description of God's people at this time. It says, Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights so that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. Opposite of that, this king, he is going to be the defender of the insignificant. People who are normally trodden down by the rich and the powerful, he takes note of and he fights for them. And what is the weapon of his warfare? End of verse 4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. His word is his mighty sword. He is the God-man, after all. He upholds all things by the word of his power. His word is his scepter. He will strike the earth with the rod or the scepter of his mouth. And didn't we see that last week in Revelation 19, when all the armies of Antichrist are arrayed against him and all he does is speak a word and they're wiped out. Verse 5 goes on, Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. If you think back to ancient times, what use was a belt? Well, they wore long tunics And when it came time to work or it came time to fight, they would gather up the folds of their garments and they would tuck them into their belts so that they could work, so they would be unencumbered in battle. So this belt, it speaks of action and readiness. So this king's moving, his acting, his warring will be characterized by righteousness and by faithfulness. We saw that last week as well in Revelation 19. Verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Now we're not used to having leaders like that. We're used to having leaders who have no convictions. 
They have no ultimate loyalty to God, which is an unwavering guidance to their decisions. We're used to leaders who change their convictions as often or more often in some of our cases than we change smelly socks. We are used to leaders who lick their finger and stick it up into the air to determine which way the winds of public opinion are blowing, and then they change their convictions accordingly. But that will not be the case with this king. He delights in the fear of the Lord, remember. Public opinion will not sway him one inch. We can trust this king. His word is his bond. So this is the portrait that Isaiah gives us of our coming king, Jesus. He's coming again, and this will be the kind of king that he will be. And if we're his people, this is the kind of king that we are serving now. And the question for you and me is, do you want to be ruled by this kind of king? And I hope the answer for you is yes, I do. And the follow-up question is, are you being ruled by this king? Does your life bear the marks of being ruled by this king? Because this is the biblical Jesus. Jesus is not the limp-wristed hippie that many of our pictures portray him to be. He was not born to a virgin simply so that we could, on a cold winter's day, sit around our fires with a hot cocoa in our hands and feel nostalgic. That's not why he came. He took on flesh to redeem us from our sins by living, dying, and rising on our behalf as our substitute to make us citizens of his kingdom. And yes, he is gentle, and he is kind, And he is humble, which is why we can come to him without fear of reproach, knowing he will quickly gather us up into his arms and save us. But we dare not mistake that for weakness or a decreased holiness or justice. Because he came to save, and when he comes again, he will come to conquer and to rule. Are you ready for him? Because the alternative is to taste of his wrath in hell forever. But he bids you come and find refuge in him. Now we read in these verses about this king, and considering who he is, we think, wow, his kingdom must be quite glorious. And we would be correct in that conclusion. Because when we come to verses 6 through 10, we discover what this coming kingdom will be like. Verse 6, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Now when we read those verses, what are we instantly reminded of? We're reminded of of the Garden of Eden, and particularly the Garden of Eden when? 
Well, before the fall happened, before sin plunged all of creation under the curse, here we see that this king is reversing the effects of the curse. In his kingdom, there will be a a noticeable absence of death and danger. And we find that the peace he brings is so pervasive that it doesn't just bring peace between God and man. It doesn't just bring peace between man and man, but it also brings peace even in the animal world. It's so pervasive. You're not going to have predators hunting down prey. The wolf can lay down with the lamb, the leopard with the goat, the lion with cattle. A little boy can lead them around. And most significantly, what do we read about in verse 8? The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, the weaned child by the viper's den. What Adam's sin had wrecked, Jesus' salvation and his sovereignty restores. And camping on verse 8, which of God's creatures did Satan use to tempt Eve to sin? The snake, the serpent. The serpent was an instrument in Satan's hands to introduce us to sin. And since then, there has been enmity between man and snake, especially venomous snakes. We don't want our kids having to, you know, worry about that, so we exterminated them. But even this old enmity will be removed in the coming kingdom. Notice how how great the reversal is that the Lord Jesus will bring about. And what is the reason for all of this peace? Verse 9, again, For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The reason for all the peace is that the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth. Kind of reminds us of Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 34, where Jeremiah is speaking of the new covenant and he is describing um, the kingdom that will come about and more specifically the citizens of the kingdom that will be brought about by this new covenant. In verse 34 of Jeremiah 31, he says, They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. We find here that the knowledge of the Lord will permeate creation. And it's not just a knowing facts about God. It's a knowing of God himself. This is a life-changing, heart-transforming type of knowing. The knowledge of the Lord will be the very air that we breathe in this kingdom. As the sea is wet, the kingdom of Christ will be a knowing God kind of kingdom. As the water bears down on the ocean floor with unfathomable weight, so the knowledge of God will press down into the entire earth. Every crevice will not be unaffected by the knowledge of God. It will transform all of creation. And Jesus is bringing this kingdom. And when we get to verse 10, we are reminded of how this king started. Verse 10 says, 
then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. We're reminded that he just started out like a little sucker rising out of the roots of a stump. And Isaiah returns to this picture in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. But now in verse 10, look at him. He is standing as a signal for the peoples. He's like a giant tree. He's like a banner raised up on a pole that all the nations look and seek, resort to, stream to. He's no longer overlooked, but he is the one to whom everyone looks. And when we come to Revelation, we find that in this kingdom there will be people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And when we come to chapter 21 of Revelation, we find the new Jerusalem having descended out of heaven onto the new earth. And this new Jerusalem is illumined by God himself, by this king. And it's the light of God, the light of this king that the nations, it says, of the earth will live by. Look back to Isaiah chapter 2, because Isaiah returns to this kingdom often in this book. And he speaks of this here, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. He says, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. And that kingdom, everybody is going to be excited to come and sit at the feet of King Jesus and learn from him. And the question for us again is, are you a subject of this king? Are you a citizen of this kingdom? Can the citizens of this world, can they tell any discernible difference between them and between you to the point to where they say, you know, you're not from around here. What happened to you? You must have been born from somewhere else. Jesus came that very first Christmas in order to redeem a people for himself who would be zealous for God just like he is. I want to close by reading Titus chapter 2. In verse 11, which just reinforces this understanding. 
Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us. Why? To redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's the kind of people he's making us to be, citizens of his kingdom. And if you're trusting in Christ this morning, he has saved you from the wrath of God and he has saved you from your sin being the one ruling you. And now he is the one ruling you. Are you living for him? I pray that more and more we may be those who live for our King of Kings, Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and how it reminds us that Christmas, which is right and good to celebrate and to meditate on, uh, it communicates not just the beginning of this King, but also the end as well the eternal end where he's bringing in a kingdom that will be forevermore. And our great hope is that you have made us citizens of this kingdom. Lord, help us to be living in the light of this coming kingdom. And anybody here who does not know this king and is not a citizen of this kingdom, Lord, may you open their blind eyes to see that they are being ruled and dominated by their sin. And may you give them a desire to be ruled and dominated By King Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.